In this second episode of a two-part series, Grid Forward Executive Director Bryce Yonker talks with Kaiso President and CEO Elliot Mainzer about resource adequacy and diversity, priorities for decarbonization, and preparing for future stresses to the regional grid system. Listen in. Welcome to another episode of Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. Welcome to the next edition of Grid Forward Chats. I'm Bryce Yonker with Grid Forward. Today we have with us the president and CEO of the California ISO, Elliot Mainzer. Elliot, thanks for being on with us. Thanks for having me, Bryce. Good to talk to you. So maybe I can pivot us over to a couple topics we haven't covered much yet. Uh, so the Biden administration is talking about a goal of a fully decarbonized energy system uh, by 2035. Uh, out here in the West, a number of states, including California, Washington, others, utilities and other parties ha- have made full decarbonization targets. What role uh, does CalISO and regional markets uh, and just generally in the region, what role do key stakeholders play to help that be a successful endeavor? Well, well, first of all, just having the Biden administration being so focused and I think already so effective in harnessing resources to take on decarbonization has been transformational. It's just fabulous to have such strong partnerships back there, uh, whether it's at the Department of Energy or whether it's FERC, others. I mean, it's just a really, really capable group of people who I think have a lot of experience and who recognize the importance of infrastructure and the importance of wide area market coordination in achieving these goals. So just by policy orientation, that's super fabulous. And I'm sure uh, as as things start to really escalate, you know, our California Energy Commission will be staying very closely tied out uh, with folks back in D.C. in terms of, of uh, research priorities. Vehicle electrification is obviously going to be a, a big push as we migrate the transmission, the transportation system onto the grid. I think that also there's a real recognition of the importance of transmission development. And I think a real some very smart people who understand what the actual on the ground commercial and operational bottlenecks are to transmission development. So I'm hoping that we can find some ways to really effectively deploy capital, potentially even in the form of, of, of almost an equity ownership stake in some lines to get them across the goal line uh, could be really helpful. So I think all of us, certainly at the ISO, I know the other utilities, there's a lot of strong relationships with members of this administration, a real Lots of open lines of communication. Uh, you know, I know that uh, the California Air Resources Board, you know, Leanne Randolph, the new leader there, has has excellent relationships back east. So there's going to be a lot of good dialogue and a hopefully very pragmatic, as Jigger Shah likes to say, deployment, right? We all want to move into deployment, deployment, deployment. So I'm excited and uh, I think there's some great opportunities ahead. And, and on the deployment front, you know, you saw the wave of, of wind resources that came into the, the Northwest. You're, you know, you have a front row seat to the level of solar that's being deployed there in, in California. Um, as there's significant renewables that are coming online, you're, we already talked a little bit about demand side and storage, but what capabilities or what resources are especially critical uh, that we invest in so that the system performs the way that it needs to? Yeah, that's the right question. You know, I think in the in the short term, we are putting a lot of focus in California on solar 
and battery development. And they really have, I think, out of a lot of the IRP planning shown up as the kind of the least cost strategy for the near term. I think at the same time, through a lot of modeling through the Energy Commission, through the through CAISO, through others, we're also recognizing that at some point for both reliability, resilience, and actual, you know, reduction of dependence on the gas fleet, you need to diversify into a bigger base. And that includes a big look at offshore wind. It includes a look at geothermal, you know, all the supply side, the demand side, all the demand side resources are obviously going to be very, very important. But I think longer term, there are also some big question marks about where are we going to get our firm capacity from? You know, we've actually uh, reached out to, to Jesse Jenkins and his team back at Princeton to hear a little bit more about his thought process. I've been very impressed with that work and trying to get a sense of what is that longer dated portfolio look like? And then what are some of the steps that we need to be taking now in terms of infrastructure development, market design, planning to have optionality to really bring those resources into the dispatch? You know, 2030 is not that far away, you know, and some of these resources are going to have to come on board. I will admit I'm sort of an unabashed, I guess, uh, I'm very interested in hydrogen. I've been doing a lot of podcasting and reading, learning as much as I can about the hydrogen economy. I've been very interested in what's happening out at the Intermountain Power Plant, where they're going to be converting that project from a coal plant into kind of a hydrogen gas burner and ultimately a hydrogen burner. That is so interesting to me in terms of utilization of existing infrastructure, utilization of transmission, even potential for you know jobs and local community development. That's a real winning solution. How broadly applicable is that into other infrastructure? So hydrogen, other clean fuels, um, certainly the geothermal, and then, you know, really, honestly, you know, regional market integration, I think, plays a big role in this as well. You know, we have massive supply and resource diversity across the Western United States. And a lot of folks who are interested in being exporters and, and importers and recognizing that the more we can leverage that diverse portfolio, we can simultaneously get more sustained capacity value out of the resource base and reduce the aggregate capacity needs of the system by leveraging wide area diversity. And so I certainly think regional market integration uh, will continue to be a, an important tool in the toolbox uh, as we think about the back end of the, of the reliability curve. We had uh, Dan Riker on our forum last week to get some perspectives on everything that's going on with the federal policy. And, and he was sharing about the opportunity that there may be to power non-powered uh, hydro resources. Obviously you have a long history with hydro. Um, maybe some of these others are a little bit outside your wheelhouse, whether it's small, modular, nuclear, or fusion. But any of those other areas that maybe we haven't talked about, do, do you see a role with them as you as you think about the mix? You know, I hope so. You know, I've been I've been really impressed with the work that Dan has done. You know, I think you know bringing greater understanding between the hydro industry and the environmental community is just so foundational for so many reasons. Of course, that was something that was very important to me personally. At the Bonneville Power Administration, I think hydro there there is there is a, a, a central role for hydro in many ways, uh, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, for many many years to come. Notwithstanding some of the questions and some of the you know, additional changes that we're likely to see over the years in California right now, you know, nuclear is not really on the table. Um, you know, we're in the you know Diablo Canyon's going to be coming out here in the next few years. It's been sort of a mobilization away from from nuclear power. And I understand that. 
I think it will be interesting to watch, on the other hand, how the small modular nuclear reactor industry develops. You know, does that show a track record of success? Are they able to demonstrate greater safety, greater reliability, greater ramping, greater flexibility? And where does that get deployed? How does that fit into the picture? Uh, I know I just saw just recently up here, up in uh, Grant and a couple, couple entities up in the Northwest starting to look at, at that technology. So I'm going to be watching that very carefully out of, the, out of the corner of my eye. I'm not sure it's going to be top of the list in California anytime in the future, but it will be interesting to watch that. And so, you know, the traditional big hydro pump storage, you know, it's, you know, boy, you say to yourself, you always say to yourself, if I could snap my fingers, um, and, and have some of that longer duration storage available to me, that would be really, really helpful. There is a group of CCAs in California, the community choice aggregators that have a, that have a, they're doing a procurement of longer duration storage right now. I'm really interested to hear what they come up with and what new forms of, which, which new chemistries and which new deployments can really get us some of that longer duration. The hydrogen is really interesting in that patch. One of the things that makes Intermountain Power Project so interesting is it's got a salt dome out there where they can store that hydrogen. You can literally shift megawatt hours across seasons, you know, with something besides big reservoirs. That's super fascinating. So I think we need to stay open-minded and flexible and very engaged in the conversation about these longer dated and more transformational resources and be prepared uh, to get them into the system. Uh, and also to do some R&D and some pilots to give them a chance to get off the ground. So topic of the day, it's been a topic often, but we, we need to make sure we cover resiliency some. We, we obviously talked about the heat wave uh, last summer. It was a really rough fire season. Um, what role does the regional market play? What role do key stakeholders play as we try to get much more proactive on preparing for these increasingly you know, what, what used to be low probability, high impact things that are just becoming more increasingly uh, a reality for us? It's, 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 it's a great question. And, you know, the, the interplay between reliability and resiliency now is becoming something that we're having to really grapple with, I think, at a much deeper level and trying to figure out how do you engineer resiliency into your system? I think we know that, you know, you you can't ride through every single event in a utility system. We don't design our systems to ride through every single event, but you want increasingly to recognize that these types of heating events, cooling events, wind, you know, storms, wind events, just this kind of disruption is becoming more calm, more common. Dust storms, you know, what we saw last year significantly derated the solar resources in California. This is, you know, something while we've got a lot of timber to burn through in California, that's going to be around. So engineering diversity into your fleet is obviously something that's really important so that you don't have such a significant fraction of resources re reacting to one particular impact. That becomes increasingly important as we put more and more of society's needs on the electrical grid. So diversity is obviously really, really important. Greater integration, greater transmission interconnectivity between regions obviously can foster that types of, of resource diversification. You also need increasingly, you know, I think resilience to the other element is recovery. You know, you need to be able to get back on your feet after a disruptive event, right? Part of it is being able to, to, to recover. Well, interconnectivity and connectivity with adjacent regions, I think, is another thing. And also technologies that, you know, 
have a pretty good understanding of the speed with which they can recover their fuel supply is going to be really important. So I think we're still a little bit in, in the early stages of really understanding exactly what it means to, to, to engineer resiliency into our system. But we learned it last summer. Uh, it's going to become more common, these heating events, cooling events, and it now needs to be a principal feature of the power system. And if you look at the, the cooling event in Texas or you take the fires from last September or the heat wave from last um, summer, uh, all of them were not very localized, right? They, they were pretty widespread. So the role that regional markets could play was essentially somewhat diminished. What If these events are widespread, uh, does that diminish the role that regional markets can play? Yeah, look, there's going to be certain things that may happen uh, that are just going to, you're just going to have to ride them through. Uh, you know, you take a big, you know, one of the things I know we struggled with a lot in the Pacific Northwest was when you get a big high pressure system coming in, it could span multiple states. And it didn't matter whether you had Columbia Gorge wind and Montana wind and Wyoming wind, that there could be a pretty high correlation between those events. And so there's just certain things, and, and I'm not sure you can build your way out of that problem or, or microgrid your way out of that problem or battery your way out of that problem. You have to be ready for some, certain events, and I think that probably implicates <laughs> the home survival kit to a certain degree. But that said, I do think through modeling and through analysis and probability estimation and again, being open-minded to as many different fuels and as many different technologies on both the supply side and the demand side, we can at least try to minimize the overall impact and maximize the recovery period, or I guess minimize the recovery, be able to get back on our feet as quickly as possible. And that's where I think that connectivity uh, and, and interdependency will, will help. Pardon this quick interruption. Do you like the in-depth interviews on Grid Forward Chats? Subscribe to our channel on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Podbean apps. That way, you don't miss a single chat. And learn more about Grid Forward at gridforward.org. Now, back to the show. So I know this isn't as much in your day-to-day -day there, but it's just one of those areas that's so active right now. So maybe you can comment a little bit around the role that advanced policies and, and progressive regulations play to ensure that the future system we have, especially if it's leveraging, for example, distributed resources at scale, what's your thoughts around that? Whether it's things directly in California or you mentioned for two by four, some of those other kind of elements of that, of that equation. You know, I, I have never really thought of myself as being out on the, you know, sort of leading edge of, of rate or, or policy design per se. I mean, I certainly can can talk about, uh, you know, what the what the implications are in terms of uh, net energy metering and how that you know corresponds with capacity pricing and net qualifying capacity determinations at the bulk grid. You know, we can talk a little bit about you know transmission incentives uh, to really get people to deploy capital. Right now, what I'm mostly focused on and something that I see as 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 a problem is is harmonization and simplification and clarification. A big point that I've been making as I've come into California, and I think uh, this is something that others can learn from California since honestly, our resource adequacy paradigm is far from perfect, but you know it's up and running and it's been around for a while, 
is you really need to try to focus on fundamental building blocks, get the right price incentives, the right accountability mechanisms, and make sure that they are harmonized through the entire chain, right? We have the CEC that's focused on load forecasting, the California Public Utilities Commission that's focused on integrated resource planning and procurement. The ISO has a bunch of elements of its tariff. And when I look at those today, I see them as being overly complex and not sufficiently harmonized. And so we have a lot of really good dialogue, I think, going on now between the state agencies and the ISO to figure out how to make sure that that whole suite of planning and procurement and accountability policies and mechanisms are as well integrated and as well coordinated and as harmonized as possible. This is particularly important for us in California at the ISO because, look, the state uh, state level control of resource adequacy is pretty foundational across the Western United States. That's not just the case in California. You know, the public utility commissions across the West generally invoke, I think appropriately, control over resource adequacy and, and, and planning and, and cost allocation and, and the IRP processes. So at the ISO, we need to make sure particularly that the resource adequacy elements of our tariff are not only harmonized effectively with California, but can be relatively easily harmonized with other states as we increase our regionalization. And so I'm really pressing with my policy guys to look at every single element of it and say, okay, is this as complicated as it needs to be and no more? That's that's a key question. And then have we integrated across the entire drivetrain so that market participants can have a clear understanding of the rules based on solid data and that are easily complied with. So that's a big focus for me. Well, there's lots of areas we could certainly talk about, but uh, we're going to be getting near our time here. Um, I've got a bit more of a personal question, and then and then we'll wrap up. Um, can you talk a little bit about the culture that CalISO has? How are you looking to, um, you know, create that identity? And you're a bit fresh in the role, and you still haven't met a lot of your folks. But how mm-hmm. how are you looking to establish the culture that the organization has? It's it's really interesting coming into the ISO and basically doing it all virtually, right? I, I think I mentioned before I've I've only met probably in person about five percent of the workforce. But even working remotely and and meeting only a small subset of people, the outreach and the sense of community and the sense of pride and dedication and focus and hard work has been really palpable. I'm really, really, honestly, even six months in, I feel like I can say I'm super proud of what the ISO has been able to accomplish. I mean, just the last few months, Working remotely, being able to put together a really, really intensive, I think, you know, comprehensive package of market enhancements and resource adequacy enhancements to to learn from last summer and get ready for next summer, while really listening to stakeholders and I think responding to a lot of good input, onboarding another five EIM entities, you know, doing that all remotely with a sense of commitment and passion and hard work has been just astonishing to me. So I really, really value that. I think the area that that you know I've talked with folks already is the ISO is a little bit like BPA in the sense that it's very, very central to California and involved in so many different areas, and a lot is asked of it. And so you have it's a very um, energetic and very committed and potent organization in a lot of ways. That's the only word I've been able to come up with. 
But I feel like we have to harness and direct and prioritize a lot of that work a little bit more effectively. Sometimes I think our customers are sort of like, hey, Kaiso, you're sort of killing me with content. You know, there's so much going on. I need a breather. I think that's felt internally. I think that's felt externally. And I think as we get back in the building, we have a chance to spend more time together. Uh, It'll be an opportunity for some greater prioritization and focus and also ability to get beyond the next six months and really think one, three, five, 10 years out. So prioritization, focus, um, and a lot of responsiveness to customers. Those are other areas that I think I'll really emphasize. You're recently out of your direct role with the federal government, uh, and there's some big ideas that are circulating and coming about around the role that various federal agencies and functions can play. What would your thoughts be around priority or an area that uh, different federal agencies uh, can and maybe should be functioning? Where, Where would you like to see support from the federal government, whether it's across the country or directly more specific out towards our direction this in this region? You know, coming out of uh, over 10 years in the senior executive service, I have a, I have a, I have a one-year restriction on my ability to, to engage on any issues of substance with my DOE counterparts. It's been really frustrating to not be able to reach out to my old Bonneville friends or anybody at you know, DOE. And I've been obviously very disciplined about that, but certainly I've been watching one of my key thoughts for the administration is, and I think they're so far doing a really good job, is just to be super pragmatic and really coordinated. If you think about the talent base that we have in this administration, even within, you know, it's, it's really kind of unprecedented in terms of folks with, with real development and finance and on the ground experience. And I think that they, I really hope that if the focus is on deployment and really moving the ball in terms of transmission, vehicle electrification, new technology, helping advance the the, the state of play of, of hydrogen, really figuring out, okay, what is what is energy doing? What's interior doing? What are the different you know elements of the what are the different departments within the government doing and how do they really complement each other, not step on each other's toes and make sure they have a really coordinated, pragmatic response that will really make a difference. I think if you overshoot it, you can come away without anything tangible done. But if you get really pragmatic about the things that will be real difference makers, I think that they can uh, be successful. So that's been my big advice. And I mentioned a couple areas earlier around, you know, around transmission, uh, you know, electrification. I think those are a couple areas where they could be real difference makers for us. Great. So one final question before we wrap it up. Uh, The last year has really made it clear how critical uh, the reliable supply of energy really is to our lives and to the communities that we're living in. Uh, What do you think we've learned over the last 12 months that will better help us prepare for the, the coming few years? You know, if there's one lesson for me, particularly now operating an independent system operator and just knowing how much society depends on reliable energy. It's, it's, it's about communication. You know, I think that it's really, really important, especially going into this summer that we stay extraordinarily communicative with, with the governor's office, with the legislature, with the utilities, with customers, so we can really help people anticipate what's going on. You know, nobody likes bad surprises, right? And so staying ahead of the curve, really helping people anticipate what, where we where where things are, are coming. Just next week, actually, on the 15th, we're hosting something called the Reliability Readiness Table, uh, 
readiness roundtable uh, for summer 2021. We're getting the key utilities and path operators and resource providers together inside California to sort of review uh, the state of play going into the summer, everything everything we learned last summer, everything that's been done to prepare for this summer, and to think about anything else we could do to maximize coordination going into the summer. And then we'll be reporting out on that uh, to the governor's office and to the legislators or partners at the state agency. So communicating and coordinating and helping people and, and helping the consumer also understand how they can play a role in helping us decarbonize the grid. You know, I, I know that I'm classic. I don't want to do 12 things to help the grid on a hot summer night. But if I can do one or two things, they can be real difference makers and I can have a sense of participating in this transition. I think that's very powerful. So I I think a big thing for all of us is communication and and then partnership and collaboration. I've really enjoyed getting to know my colleagues at the California Energy Commission, the California Public Utilities Commission, the governor's office. These are a lot of new great partners. They're going to turn into long term friendships, I hope. And I think that that sort of horizontal coordination communication with the state agencies is also a big part of it. So I think if we stay ahead of the game, we're really intellectually honest. We're very transparent and straightforward with people about what we're doing and the problems we're trying to solve. We don't catch them by surprise. We're going to have a much better ride uh, than what we saw last summer. Well, Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks for being on with us. We're looking forward to your, your great leadership there with Calais. So thanks for all your time at BPA. Thank you, Bryce. I really appreciate the conversation and best to you and, and, and all your listeners. Don't miss the first episode in this two-part series with Elliot Mainzer, in which he talks about priorities at the California ISO, as well as the critical role that regional markets play in meeting grid objectives. Check it out now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats, our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization ahead. Check out our website at gridforward.org to learn more about our podcasts, virtual events, becoming a member, and our mission to promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across our region.